Blog Talk Radio. show and the Eastern Airlines radio show are on the air live with another episode of airline talk news and history we try to bring you stories from here and there today my name is Neil Holland retired captain with Eastern Airlines and producer of the show and if you're listening in on the show's website which is blogtalkradio.com forward slash captain Eddie and you'd like to call in and talk with our guest and host or to just add your memories, then why not give us a call? You can do that at 213, that's area code 213-816-1611. I'll see your number on the caller's board and, and ask if you'd like to join in the host and share those memories with us. You know, we are a satellite-based radio station and we're heard around the world. As a matter of fact, uh, we have listeners in over 50 countries, 
And that's because our antenna is 22,000 miles above the Earth. Now let me repeat that number if you'd like to add your comments to our listening audience. It's 213-816-1611. Why not pick up the phone and call us now? 213-816-1611. As usual, we have hosts from around the U.S. that join us in these airline radio talk shows. And I guess since we're getting close to the holidays, uh, some are shopping or uh, planning to go out of town because it's going to be a very, very, very busy time at the airports around America. And so uh, I'll be doing the show along with my co-host today, Captain Jim Harris. And I'm going to open your microphone, Jim Harris, and say hello. And, and we'll chat a little bit before our program. Hello, Jim. Well, hello, Neil, and how are you today? It's another wonderful day. It is a wonderful day. Got up this morning, had breakfast. That's so right. I'm on the right the side of the grass. <laughs> yeah, right side of the grass. Hey. All right. Hey, 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 you know what? For an old fart, I seem to be pretty healthy. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're doing <laughs> the, the alternative. Of the <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> the alternative well, is not good. Yeah, it is not good. That's for sure. Uh, we usually have hosts, uh, usually uh, Brenda up in Canada and Janie uh, here in Florida, and uh, we have uh, several hosts that usually do the show with us. But today we're, we're going to kind of have a limited show based on the fact that a very, very dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Warren Brown, has relinquished uh, the editorship of the Florida Aviation Historical Society's newsletter. They shorten it down, call it FAHS, Florida Aviation Historical Society, uh, their newsletter. And, and he's been publishing that newsletter for 53 years, Dr. Warren Brown. Done a wonderful job. As a matter of fact, he, along with some other folks, uh, founded the Aviation Historical Society uh, years ago, 53 years ago. And uh, he's done a fantastic job of putting this newsletter together. I'm holding one here in my hand right now, and I've taken some articles out of it. And uh, we're just going to uh, uh, play a couple of those articles, and perhaps we can make a comment to Jim Harris, captain. He's a captain with former captain with Eastern Airlines, and he flew for almost 30 years, I guess. And uh, Jim and I have uh, known each other since the radio show because. We really didn't. I don't think we flew together at all, Jim Harris, while we were based not, in Atlanta, both of us. Not one time that I know of. Okay, but fact, we I'm knew sure a, that we didn't. Well, we sure knew a lot of folks that we did fly with, you and I, and we've talked about oh, a yes. number of those those people uh, off the air. And usually, it's fun to share our memories of the crews that we flew over the years that we did fly for Eastern. Well, this first uh, article uh, that, uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Brown. Uh, talks to, talk about stories and from here and there. That's the title that was used by a late friend of mine, Howard Mucci, who passed away at 95 years old in his uh, XL550 Mercedes. And uh, he got in it to go to the hospital, the Mayo Clinic, and he passed away and passed and, and died. This was about four or five years ago. And he wrote a book, and I did some of the editing of that book. And 
I used the title about a remarkable man who's been telling stories now for 53 years, and that's Dr. Brown. His stories will probably be told next month when he retires as a co-founder and editor of the newsletter uh, that we mentioned. Dr. Brown, as I mentioned, was a flight surgeon, and he lives in the St. Petersburg area, Florida area. Nearly 300 of these newsletters have gone out to members of the Florida Aviation Historical Society over the past many years. And to quote Dr. Brown in the November 22nd, uh, 2022 issue of the newsletter, he says, due to an obstacle beyond my control, this will probably be my next to last newsletter over the past 53 years. It all started when Ed Hoffman, Russell St. Arnold, J. Paul Finley, and Warren Brown brought forth the Florida Aviation Historical Society in 1970 at the John B. Whitty Field in St. Petersburg. And six, since 286 editions have appeared highlighting the aviation history here in Florida, it has been a lot of fun, but like all parties, this one had to come to a halt. And that's the end of the quote that he made in the newsletter. Uh, Warren goes on to tell about the many that have made the FAHS successful over the years, including uh, his late co-authors of our uh, well-received book that John Engel, my partner, received when we wrote the book, Retired Eastern Pilots Association, REPA. Uh, and his name was John, Admiral John Engel, and we co-authored that book of stories that were told by the Eastern pilots. So uh, I hope, Warren, that you have many, many years left, and uh, you're healthy. And if you're listening to the show, I sent you a copy of our script here. So um, uh, I want to play a couple of articles that were in this last newsletter, Jim, and perhaps we can talk about them after you hear them played. But the first one is called the uh, Kamikaze Bats. Kamikaze Bats. B-A-T-S. You heard me right. Kamikaze Bats. Kamikaze Bats. A Pennsylvania dentist, Lytle S. Adams, was driving home from Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico when he heard about Pearl Harbor. Remembering the millions of bats in the caverns, Adams wondered why they couldn't arm them with tiny incendiary bombs. He sent his idea to President Roosevelt, who agreed to give it a shot. The military spent 27 months of research and $2 million on what came to be called Operation X-Ray. The plan was simple enough. Hundreds of thousands of bats would be captured and stored asleep in freezers. A one-ounce bomb would be attached to the loose skin on each one's chest. The bats were to be dropped from a plane over Japan in containers that would open at 1,000 feet. Startled, the bats would head for the nearest cracks and crevices of buildings and chew off the bombs, which would explode, shooting a two-foot-high flame into the air for eight minutes. Early testing at an army camp in California had mixed results. 
Some bats slept through freefall and dropped like rocks. Others escaped and set the entire army base on fire, including a general's ear, or I should say car, excuse me. The army then passed Operation X on to the Navy. But the project came to an abrupt halt in 1944, as the military worked on a bomb far more powerful than anything a bat could deliver. Uh, Jim, Jim Harris, had you ever heard of that, bats being used? Never. I no, I never either. heard of that before. I had never heard of that. And that's the kind of stories that you would uh, read in the, the uh, 12 pages or something like that of the aviation newsletter that Dr. Brown put out. I mean, the stories that uh, he found to uh, the interest there, you'd read it from cover to cover. And I particularly like the jokes. He had one page that uh, were full of jokes, and some of them were a little bit risque, and he'd turn that joke upside down in print. So <laughs> that was his way of putting a censorship, I guess, on, on something that was a little bit uh, risque. <laughs> So, I like the fact that when they experimented, they burned the whole base down almost with these bats. <laughs> but now, you know, I would like to find out how they were frozen. Bats were frozen and brought back to life. I'd never heard of that. I've I, yeah, I heard that. Wow. Well, one of the stories. Now, we've got a couple more here, so let's see what uh, – Another story in the last issue that next to the last issue that Warren is producing. And its title is The Day of Infamy. And it was, uh, was foretold in 1925 about what actually happened. So let's listen to story number two. The Day of Infamy was foretold in 1925. Can you believe that? The surprise attack on Pearl Harbor should not have been a surprise to the U.S. military, at least not if they had paid attention, as the Japanese had, to a book published in America in 1925. It's titled The Great Pacific War and written by Hector C. Bywater, a British naval intelligence agent and military correspondent. It vividly foretold the strategy the Japanese would employ in a war against America. The Japanese ambition, Bywater wrote, was to conquer China and Korea for raw materials. But to achieve her goal, J Japan would first have to cripple American forces in the Pacific. She would do so in a series of precision strikes. Bywater went on to predict that the attack would begin with a devastating sneak attack, sneak air attack on U.S. naval forces. The first target would be Manila Bay. He was wrong about the target, but uncannily accurate otherwise. Did the Japanese, in fact, use Bywater's book as a blueprint for their assault? At the time, Osoroku Yamamoto Japan's brilliant commander by World War II, it was stationed, was stationed in Washington, D.C. as a naval attaché. Fluent in English, he could hardly have missed the book. It was featured on the front page of the New York Times book review. 
Also, both the Great Pacific War and Bywater's 1921 study, Sea Power in the Pacific, were pirated in Japan and circulated among its officers. Years later, Mitsu Fuchida, a prominent Japanese military historian, admitted that when he attended the Japanese Naval War College in 1936, both works were studied. By then, students taking final exams at the Japanese Naval Academy were routinely asked, how would you attack Pearl Harbor? America may have helped answer that question, too. War games conducted by Admiral Harold Yarnell in Hawaiian waters in 1932 revealed the vulnerability of Pearl to a surprise pre-dawn aerial attack launched from aircraft carriers. The results of the games were widely publicized. Yet, to what extent, if any, Admiral Yamamoto was seriously influenced by Bywater is hard to say. Bywater had also predicted the ultimate destruction of the Imperial Navy and the bombing of Tokyo. The Battle of Midway, the decisive turning point of World War II in the Pacific, would have been a disaster had it not been for Commander Joseph Rochefort, Jr., who in 1940 had helped break the top Japanese naval code known as JN-25. Following the Pearl Harbor disaster, America anxiously wondered where and when the Japanese would strike again. Knowing the code had done no good on December 7, 1941, because the Japanese had maintained radio silence prior to the attack. Then, in the spring of 1942, Roach Force Intelligence Unit in Hawaii started picking up an unsealed volume of coded radio traffic from the Japanese fleet. What they read was ominous. Admiral Yamamoto was putting together a huge fleet for an assault on a target called AF. It's believed the letters were coding were coded map coordinates for Midway, but Admiral Chester Nimitz could take no chances. He had to be sure. Rochforth proposed a ruse. He sent a coded message to Midway telling the Americans to return a bogus message, uncoded that the island's water distillation system had broken down. The trick worked. A few days later, the Japanese code reported that AF was short on water. With this information, Nimitz rushed to position the U.S. fleet on the flank of the Japanese, who thought it was 1,300 miles away in Hawaii. When the Japanese launched their attack, they were dumbfounded by an American counterattack that sank four of their aircraft carriers and ended their ability to take the offensive. In attempting surprises, said Nimitz, the Japanese were themselves surprised. You know, it's stories like that that's told through the newsletters or in the newsletters by Warren that uh, he had came uh, he came up with that made it so interesting stories that uh, we hadn't heard before, and so that's why I really enjoyed being a member 
of the Florida Aviation Historical Societies. I guess I joined when Admiral John Engel uh, here in Jacksonville introduced me to Dr. Brown and the Florida Aviation Historical Society started a chapter here in Jacksonville and it was called the Laurie Young chapter of the Florida Aviation Historical Society. Laurie Young being the fixed base operator here in Jacksonville uh, back during the Lindbergh days and uh, and uh, well-known. Matter of fact, he signed my logbook for my commercial flight that I had to do for my commercial uh, pilot certificate. Uh, so uh, he has uh, he has throughout his uh, editorship of that uh, newsletter done an outstanding job of creating interest from page one all the way back uh, to the last page in the newsletter. Uh, had you heard about that story? Uh, Jim Harris? I have not. Okay. Not until just now. Okay. So, yeah, it, it uh, you know, speaking of the newsletter, it's open to anyone that wants to join the organization. Matter of fact, uh, uh, we were doing a show about 10 years ago, maybe, about Hall of Fames because John Engel and I, uh, Admiral Engel and I, attended the, the dedication of uh, induction, I should say, into the class of uh, Hall of Fame, Georgia uh, Hall of Fame, Aviation Hall of Fame uh, inductees. And, and we had uh, Bill Malone and Gip Guerin had, had sponsored Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, and John and I attended that. And we were so impressed with the Georgia Aviation Hall of Fame in uh, Warner Robins Air Force Base there. They have one hangar that uh, has... Uh, uh, a complete Hall of Fame, a beautiful Hall of Fame there. We came back and we talked, the two of us talked about Florida having an Aviation Hall of Fame. So we went to uh, the Tampa area. They were having a meeting, I think, over in St. Pete. And we presented that to Dr. Brown and, and the, the board of directors of that. And, and lo and behold, I think the next year, the Florida Aviation Hall of Fame was uh, was uh, was created and founded. And of course, John Engel and myself recommended for the first class in that Hall of Fame, uh, Captain Rickenbacker. And Captain Rickenbacker was inducted into the first class. And now they have uh, uh, a lot of folks over the period of time, usually about uh, three to five people are inducted every year that have been recommended for the Florida Aviation uh, Hall of Fame. So. Uh, Dr. Brown did a great job of uh, holding this organization together over the years, I think, I think, and I think primarily because of the newsletter. It really held the interest of those that received it uh, every month. But uh, then in the last couple of years, he produced, he produced the newsletter every two months, every two months. Well, Jim, I've got another story that you may not have heard either, and uh, let's see, I forgot what it's called. Uh, it's called uh, where where were there flying accidents back back during World War II, <clears throat> and uh, you would think that there were flying accidents and probably a lot of them. So let's see what this story is all about. It's story number three. Were there flying accidents? Lots of them. Flying night fighters off carriers was perhaps the most dangerous business in the world. 
Here's what John X. Stefanke, ex-night fighter, said. Accidents were inevitable. One night, a pilot lost power shortly after takeoff and crash-landed in the woods where an illegal still was being operated. The The bootleggers thought the law was making a raid. Then there was a case of the boondock pilot who had to bail out one night. He walked to the first house and requested to to make a phone call to the base. A few months later, the same pilot lost power on takeoff and landed in the street, tearing down a power line and again was unscathed. There were occasions where some pilots tried to rendezvous at night with one of the bridges over the Indian River waterway that had red and green marine navigation lights. West of the station was a radar target located in the middle of a lake, which enabled pilots to have a radar fix for night glide bombing. Navy spotters were assigned in a boat to report the results of night runs. One night, a young Marine was making a run, but failed to pull out in time and crashed into the lake. The spotters located the crash site, but were unable to find the pilot. Later, he was found asleep under a tree with only his shorts on. He did not remember anything about the crash, how he got out, or why he was sleeping under the tree. After returning to the base, he was asked if he wanted to keep flying, and surprisingly, he said yes. One night, a pilot rode his dead-engine Hellcat into the ocean east of Vero Beach and couldn't be found. The base set out search planes at daybreak, and he was located in his yellow dinghy paddling toward the beach. A rescue boat was dispatched to pick him up. Upon being retrieved, his first words were that he wasn't worried at any time since he could see the lights from Max, which was the local watering hole, and he had decided that if he paddled fast enough, he might be in time for a drink with the boys. The news editor, editor uh, Warren Brown, was stationed at Key West during the Korean War and lived at the Naval Housing Unit called uh, Sigsby Park. The Fleet All-Weather Training Unit, which was FAWTU unit, was very active at Boca Chica Naval Air Station, just outside of Key West. At least once a week, a moving van would pull up to one of the housing units and load furniture from the home of a gone West Night Fighter, It got so bad that a drive-in church service was established at Sixby. When these pilots were interviewed, they were asked, aren't you fellows afraid? The typical answer answer was, we are being paid to do a job, and we are doing it. Jim, what do you think? That's an interesting story, and yes, I totally agree with it, that they were paid to do that. And that's just what you do when you're supposed to do it. That's very true. You know, you wonder how many aircraft were lost during pilot training in World War II. And I kind of did a little uh, search on that. And, uh, you know, it's not hard to find any kind of answer if you have Google. According to Google, between December 1941 and 1945, the U.S. Army Air Forces lost 14,903 pilots 
aircrew and assorted personnel, plus 13,873 airplanes. And the World War II Foundation has compiled some remarkable statistics on this type of incident. Between 1941 and August of 1945, the U.S. Army Air Force lost uh, this number of, of, uh, of uh, pilots, 14,903, and uh, the number of airplanes inside the continental United States. Uh, amazing. But uh, I think it was a backbone and the willingness of the American people uh, during that war that uh, uh, it was resolved, uh, and mainly because of the United States Armed Forces and and the uh, pilots and uh, the personnel that served uh, uh, on the ground, uh, risking their lives. Uh, okay, well, I got one more, I think, and uh, this one is a pretty interesting one. And, and as I recall, when I read this story in the newsletter, uh, Captain Gib Guerin, and I think one of yours and mine, my favorite uh, captains, uh, Jim Harris, uh, Captain Gib Guerin, uh, interesting enough, taught these ladies how to fly. And so here's the story behind that. Were there flying accidents? Well, that's that one was that one, but this one's the last one. Here it is. Wasps and women pilots of the Air Force. The wasp woman's... Air Force service pilots looked like soldiers and acted like soldiers but weren't accepted as soldiers until 1977 when Congress recognized them as veterans of World War II. They were founded by Pensacola, Florida's own Jacqueline Cochran. A total of 25,000 women applied for the WASPs in early 1943, even though there were only 3,000 licensed female pilots in the U.S. at that time. The first class of already licensed women pilots, 25 or more, convened in early 1944 at Avenger Field, Sweetwater, Texas. The training lasted eight months, with new classes arriving each month. Of the 1,830 women who were accepted, 1,074 graduated and 38 died in service. The WASP flew target tow planes in Fort Myers. They delivered planes from factories to air bases and brought planes that needed to be repaired to maintenance facilities. In December 1944, they were disbanded, little knowing that they had opened the way for women as future Air Force pilots. You know, uh, Jackie Cochran, uh, being from Pensacola, and that's where we lived for about five or six years uh, after Eastern Airlines. Uh, uh, well, actually, I started flying, I mean, started living in Pensacola while I was flying with Eastern, and I commuted to Atlanta to fly my trips and then come back to Pensacola. But um, she was always the... Uh, of uh, interest uh, when we talked to, about to people from Pensacola, of course, the Naval Air, Air, Air Base there for training of pilots located in Pensacola. 
And what a remarkable pilot Jackie Cochran was. You know, she pioneered women's aviation as one of the most prominent racing pilots of her generation. So she started out by racing, but it, it's an interesting story of this uh, lady uh, that became so famous. She set numerous records and was the first woman to break the sound barrier. I didn't know that. On the uh, May 18th of 1953, Cochran, along with Nancy Love, was the wartime head of the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, which we just heard about in that reading, uh, or better known as WASP. Uh, she was uh, the director from 1943 until 44, and it employed about 1,000 civilian Air, Air American women in a non-combat role, mainly to fly planes from factories to port cities. Jackie Cochran was later a sponsor of the Mercury 13 Women Astronaut Program. And uh, I went and started looking up uh, the history. Uh, Wikipedia tells a pretty good story about Jackie Cochran, a very fascinating uh, young lady. Uh, from uh, from when she was born all the way through uh, her death. So uh, if you get a chance, listeners, uh, uh, check out this uh, this uh, lady of history, aviation history. Uh, did you remember much about Jackie Cochran, uh, Jim Harris? No, absolutely. I didn't know anything about anything that she did. Yeah. Well, she was quite famous. She was uh, one of the founding members of the 99ers, you know, the all-women uh, pilot organization, uh, Jackie Cochran, along with uh, Amelia Earhart. And I can't think we've all heard of Amelia Earhart. But, oh, uh, yeah. And um, uh, we were talking about her the other day, and, and I said, you know, she she ditched her airplane i guess ditched it in the water and never been found before uh, 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 never has been found uh and they keep searching but it was in 1930 i think it was in 36 that uh, she lost contact with the uh with the world and uh, it was assumed that so. she went down what one thing that they did wrong her navigator was her name Noonan? I believe his name was Noonan. Yeah, yeah, it was. Was supposed to be her navigator, and they supposed to, they supposed to had a two or three hundred foot long radio antenna that they were going to throw out of the airplane. They had this great, great big long huge antenna behind them, so they could converse more readily with people on the ground. Yeah. But the island she was looking, I mean, it's just a tiny little thing out there. So I'm not, I see no reason she'd ever found it to begin with. Yeah. Well, navigation was pretty poor. Two unsolved mysteries right there. Uh, yep. D.B. Cooper and uh, Amelia Earhart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah I, I we, think um, there, there's always been some thought that the Japanese captured her, but I don't, my own opinion, I don't think it happened. I don't think so either. I don't think so, no. I really just, I really just think that the island she was looking for uh, to refuel is so small. No wonder she didn't find it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a, it's a vast ocean out there. You know, I, I remember Newman. I, I think there was some talk about him being an alcoholic too. Do you ever remember? Yep, that's right. That. Yeah. Yes, I do. So, so he may have one of his other one, attributes. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, interesting. Uh, that's the newsletter. And again, uh, if you wanted to become a member and receive it, I think the last uh, I heard was that there were about a thousand members receiving that newsletter every uh, every month or every two months now. I'm not certain what's going to happen uh, now that Warren Brown, Dr. Brown, is no longer going to be the editor of it. I assume that the uh, Historical Society has selected someone. Matter of fact, Warren called me a few years back, and he, I think he was kind of getting tired then and wanted to know if I was interested in doing it. And I said, no, I don't think so, Warren. But um, um, it is a, a great newsletter, and uh, it's very, very cheap to uh, get membership. I think it's about $25 a year, and it includes the newsletter. And, and uh, they've done some wonderful things over there. The Benoit, the Tony Janus, flying the America or the world's first airline, uh, was promoted by Dr. Brown and other directors of the uh, Florida Aviation Historical Society, and uh, they brought that airplane reproduced to the same scale as uh, as the original Benoit uh, little flying boat that uh, that carried one passenger, I think, plus the pilot. And that first trip from uh, from St. Petersburg over to Tampa uh, was uh, America's first and the world's first commercial flight. As a matter of fact, it's recognized as the world's first uh, commercial flight. And, of course, Tony Janus, being the pilot, was the world's first commercial airline pilot. A lot of interest over there, and I think that's over in the Whitted uh, Airport, the John Whitted uh, Airport. Uh, they're close to St. Petersburg, I believe. But uh, Dr. Brown has done so much for that uh, historical society. Um, we had a chapter here. I was the president of the chapter for two years here in Jacksonville, and uh, a lot of interesting aviation historians were members of that uh, historical society here in Jacksonville, and we disbanded because most of the membership were were older folks and uh, passed away, and and um, so we had to uh, disband the the, uh, the chapter. So, Dr. Brown, I wish you good health, and uh, and I hope that uh, we might see some of your newsletters again. You might get tired and come out of retirement again, like you did in medicine, but. Uh, uh, at any rate, thanks for the good work that you and the society has done of uh, Florida aviation. Uh, so I imagine, I imagine even the old the old issues to be interesting to read. Oh, they are. I've got most of them. As a matter of fact, John Engel, when he passed away, uh, Admiral Engel, but uh, John Engel was, of course, was was uh, the director of sales and marketing here in Northeast Florida. And he started with Eastern back in 1932, uh, John did, uh, and with Eastern. And, and when I came to Jacksonville from Pensacola, when I moved over here, he was one of the first people that called me when uh, it was found out that uh, I had moved over here to this area and invited me to, to the, uh, the chapter of the EARA, had a, a chapter, local cha Eastern Airlines Retirees 
Association had a chapter here in Jacksonville, and I became a member. And, and uh, John and I became real, real good friends. What an amazing man he was. Um, his story, uh, we did a, a memorial tribute to him on one of our radio shows when he passed away. John was about 95 years old when he passed away and a wonderful friend. So, Jim Harris, now the rest of the time is between you and I. What do you think okay. we ought to talk about? What What's uh, concerning you right now? <laughs> well, one, one concern to put you I got on the right spot. now. <laughs> concerned about lunch? The, no, no. No, no, I, I don't even – I usually don't even eat lunch. I'm uh, I'm overweight already, so no. I don't <laughs> so, eat lunch So either. lunch is yeah. kind of out of the question most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, if it's liquid, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on what kind of liquid also. <laughs> yeah. You, you uh, got to remember, Neil, I, I'm part Indian. Oh, my great you, great great grandmother was a full blooded Indian. Oh, what 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 and tribe? I don't know Choctaw. I think Choctaw. Uh, she was never ever talked about. I never knew her name till not fifteen years ago, probably. And the reason I think she escaped on the Trail of Tears that Andrew wow. Jackson did and ran up all the Indians in North Carolina yeah. and East Tennessee. Yeah. And I think she escaped on that. She wound up in Middle Tennessee. Uh, at present, she's buried in uh, in a clump of trees in the middle of a plowed field along with her daughter. Her name was Jane Lennon. Her daughter's name was Mary Jane Lennon. And I think my granddad is also buried in there also. Uh-huh. But he was, first off, nobody ever talked about it because she was an Indian to begin with. So that's mm-hmm. a kind of a no-no right there. Well, here's the other thing. She had either eight or nine kids by three different men, was never married to anybody. Oh, God. Now she's really dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, must have been an interesting character. Where when, is she buried? What part, of, what part of Tennessee is she buried in? Um, close to Milton Intercession, Milton, Tennessee. Milton, Tennessee. Okay. There, there's, there's, see, there's Milton and Las Casas and, uh, and, and, what, Canesville, Canesville, Tennessee. And they're all just little wide spots in the road mostly, but, yeah, she's kind of buried in between there. There's a, it's a road called Oregon Road, mm. and, uh, it goes by where her, uh, where she's buried. She's buried off the road probably, I don't know, half a mile or so. Well, uh, <clears throat> we were talking off the air about some of the some of the crews that we flew with, you and I, and some of the interesting uh, people that we would flew we flew with because we we came on along the time that we were co-pilots for those captains that we flew with were a lot of them mostly were World War Two fighter pilots and bomber pilots that's right many of them yeah the greatest people in the world yeah and the stories that we heard in the cockpit and you oh, know, know a lot of them jim you had to, you knew that they were world war ii pilots and you wanted to hear their story 
and you you try to get them in a conversation about it, and they they just kind of didn't want to talk about it. No, but, they didn't. They didn't want to talk. Yeah, that's right. But there were a few that would, and uh, and you had to you had to wrestle with them to get them to talk about it. And one of the that's right. One of the guys that I really enjoyed flying with, you probably flew with him too, was Ralph Pitts. Oh yeah, Ralph Pitts, tall, lanky guy, and uh, I had to work out the story that uh, he was shot down. He was in a B-17. And um, he was uh, shot, the airplane was shot and falling apart out in the sky. And he told all his crew to go ahead and bail out. And, um, and he stayed in the airplane along with his co-pilot. And, uh, and, and he bailed out at the last minute. Uh, he was the last one off the airplane, out of the airplane. And he landed in enemy territory. And uh, they had been given... Uh, before each mission, I guess, they had been given instructions as to friendlies there on the ground that uh, wherever they were and a contact, how to contact these friendlies that would house them and, and, and hide them. And sure enough, uh, they found over in Italy, I think it was, they found um, this friendly because Italy had been occupied by, by the Germans and uh, they found this family and uh, they stayed with him but you know his wife uh didn't know they reported him missing in action because several months went by and he was trying to find his way back to the allied line and uh, and 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 you know come home alive and so for several months uh, his wife and family didn't know anything about where he was and he was just reported missing in action well, that could mean that he crashed and he was killed. That's right. It could mean anything. Yeah, it could mean anything. But he finally got over to the Allied side of the war, and and uh, then the news came back to his wife and family that he was uh, uh, he was found and and um, he was fine. Uh, he he didn't suffer any breaks or anything when he parachuted out. But it was interesting stories like that that we used to hear in the cockpit. Oh, those were the days, my friend. Yep. One of my favorite players was Julian S. Whitehead. Oh, golly, yes. Yeah, and you know, there's a book out there called God is My Co-Pilot. Yeah. And in the book, it talks about Lieutenant Whitehead. Well, that's Julian S. Whitehead. And, and wow. he was a good friend of mine in Atlanta. Sometimes, sometimes I'd call him. I'd say, "Hey, Lieutenant," he said, "What'd you call me that for?" I said, "I read the book, Captain. Now he's happy." <laughs> uh, I, as a matter of fact, I have a, I have a display case over here with some memorabilia in it, and I have a. Of course, I got a model of a seven twenty seven, and I have some of the some of the uh, fancy glassware off of the, the long trips. And I have a picture of him in here standing in his captain's uniform in front of an Airbus. Oh, okay. So that's in my, that's in my display case. I can remember him as being a very tall, white-haired, uh, very important-looking guy. I mean, he was kind oh, yeah. of the picture of an airline captain that you would think of, you know? He really was. Yeah. Oh, he, he was a good man, a good man, yeah. a good first, and a good friend. Yeah. Well, I, I found somehow, out also about Jack Tack. Did you ever fly with Jack Tack? 
I don't know. If I did, I don't remember it. Was he the guy with the real thin mustache? Yeah, he had a mustache. And um, but uh-huh. Jack, uh, Jack, no, this is uh, that. That's my friend Jack Howard. But Jack Tack, yeah. uh he was a World War II pilot, and he he was shot down in the Pacific, uh, and he was flying P-40s, as best I can recall. And he was an American ace. He had shot down seven enemy aircraft and was credited as an American ace. And then I tried Good to get him, him to tell me about how he survived in that ra- raft, you know, by himself. Uh, yeah. But um, I think he was in there for, uh, in the raft for about thir- 10, 13 days, somewhere around there. But, you know, one day is too long in a raft out in the middle of the ocean. Oh, yes. <laughs> yep, yep. It's, it, it's a big ocean out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the navigation we have today uh, it hadn't always been this good. That's like no. whenever you used LORAN. Whenever you used LORAN, you don't know where you were. You knew where you'd been. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, I remember. It's always, always behind. I, I don't remember how you did it. Line some little blips up somehow and on uh, on the cathode rated clay tube. Yeah, LORAN. I remember having to check when I checked out as captain. You had to check out with Loran too. You remember that? No, it, I didn't have to do that. I'm glad to say. Well, I had to go from I had to go from San Juan to Boston using Loran, and it was a day trip. But uh, uh, the the uh, what do you call it? Uh, the scope there uh, showing yeah, the, the lines and all. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I had no clue about Loran. I had no clue about how to read that map (laughs) and plot it with what I was seeing on that screen. And uh, but the the guy, the check captain that was with me on that trip, I came out short of Boston. I mean, I was off course with Boston. I was somewhere around, (laughs) I guess, Providence or somewhere around there, but uh, which is not that far off. But at any rate, uh, he did he did sign me off on Loran. And then there was Omega. Yeah, I never, I never used it. Uh, somehow you had to line up some blips. Yeah. On the cathode yep. ray display tube, yep. and then you could look on the map somehow, and then you could determine where you had been. Yeah. <laughs> it's never where you were. It's always where you where you've been. And you had those Loran maps. Yeah, that's right. There was yep. all these waves in them. Yeah, those yep. were the days, golly, Pete. And then I, I remember. I remember once or twice going from from San Juan to New York. I, I was just a flight engineer, but I was glad to see the lights of New York City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but then you know the the beautiful thing was when the 757 rolled out, and it was the first commercial airliner that had uh, the um, the glass cockpit. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to be in one of the early checkout crews on that airplane, and what a remarkable airplane that was! The navigation I could I could put the coordinates in my mailbox and do a full automatic landing to my mailbox. Yep, it was it was just so accurate, and uh, I'll never forget going into Charlotte one time, and Charlotte was socked in, and I was in the 757 and. The uh, the re- weather report says breaks in the overcast. Charlotte, that tower asked me, since they had breaks in the overcast, if 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 we saw the field, you know, we could come in on our own visual. 
this was at night, and um, <laughs> I was looking down at the scope there, and I said, yeah, there it is. Oh, oh my! Oh my! Oh my! Glass <laughs> cockpit display. I said, "There's, yeah. there's, the, there's the runways and everything all laid out. Tell, tell, tell the tower we got them in sight." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was well, looking outside. It's clouds, <laughs> but it was showing. Oh golly! And then one time it what? malfunctioned on me. Uh, the holding patterns. When you went into a holding pattern, the uh, the display would automatically go into the shape of a holding pattern with the the set dimensions that the FAA says that you know you got to stay within so many miles uh, yeah. within this holding pattern. Well, it it caught the holding pattern fix, and all of a sudden, since we were told to hold, we programmed it to hold at this fix. It automatically knew how to enter the holding pattern. And it started off on the holding pattern, and the display showed up with the racetrack, which was the holding pattern. And then all of a sudden, we were making our turn, and, and then it jumped to an expanding, expanded version. Well, I thought the first officer had done something to expand the holding pattern, which there was no need to. It was just a racetrack, and we were flying around that racetrack. After a while, the center says, hey, Eastern, you're about 20 miles outside of the holding pattern. <laughs> Is there any reason? <laughs> well, we had a malfunction, and I said. didn't realize it was a malfunction. <laughs> True story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, that, that's, but, like, uh, that's like Aritalia. They were lost like that. Yeah. And the center said, well, we show you about 20 miles out of where you're supposed to be. And they said, which way? <laughs> <laughs> Which way? <laughs> Be more specific. <laughs> Help us out. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Which way? <laughs> That's a good one. Oh, yeah. golly. Well, there, there are so many, so many funny, interesting things like that. Oh yeah, Jim. It really was. It was just, and I just wondered today's flying. I wonder. You know they are having as much fun as we did when we were we were flying the aircraft, and I I kind of think not. That's what I think. Yeah. I tell you one thing they're making a, they're making a hell of a lot of money now. I know a guy, one of my neighbors over here, um, is a Southwest pilot. If you ever think about getting want to be a pilot, make some money. He's making get this three hundred thousand dollars a year. Flying a seven thirty seven. That's a decent amount of money. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, when Eastern went out of business, Jim, did you try but, to find a job in aviation? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Oh uh, yeah. yes. Yes, and I, I couldn't find anything. Um yeah, some guy. I talked to some guy. He said, "Yeah, he said I can I can get your job flying cargo." He says, "But knowing what you did, he said you're not going to like it. Yeah, Pay's yeah. poor. Uh, the hours yeah. are terrible." And he said, "No, you're not going to enjoy it." But he said, "If you really want to, he said I can I can get you on." Yeah. But I know uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on too. So no, I didn't do it. Yeah. 
Well, I did, and I found some pretty good jobs. And uh, I was I went out to Hawaii. I was a director of flight operations for a cargo airline out there, and and um, then became the vice president of it. And and then because of the poor maintenance, we almost lost a an airplane and a crew. And I just decided I had enough because these guys didn't know how to fix round engines. And uh, now, you know, what we what yep. we talk about round engines, these were engines that had pistons in them instead of fan blades. Oh, yeah. And uh, these were R2000 uh, engines, uh, Pratt & Whitney's, and, and uh, it was on the DC-4. So we had two DC-4s and two uh, – the uh, what do you call it? The the Cessna Skywagon, uh, the the oh yeah, one at what two the caravan, two, two, the caravan, the puller. Yeah, the, yeah, no, the caravan. This was a prop jet, okay. and it was a neat little airplane. It would hold about three thousand pounds of freight, and we flew to the islands uh, carrying freight uh, between the islands. We didn't do any of uh, uh, hauling cargo to the. Uh, uh, mainland, but uh, stayed within Hawaii. That was a lot of fun until I closed it down because of poor maintenance and I walked uh-huh. off and closed the, they closed the airline down. But uh, anyhow, there were a few other good jobs that uh, didn't materialize and a couple of that did. And so here I am talking about it on the radio show. Yeah, well, when I was a full-time employee for the Tennessee Air National Guard in the ground power shop, and mm-hmm. that used to be all the yellow stuff around the airport, the maintenance stuff, uh, generators, hydraulic test stand, air yeah. conditioners, things like that. But I didn't. I was in the ground power shop, and I didn't fly. But we had KC ninety C ninety sevens. Yeah, and uh, they yeah. had four. Four Pratt and Whitney forty three sixties on them. That's four thousand three hundred and sixty cubic inches. Right. Yeah. Uh, four rows of seven. Four rows of seven cylinders. I didn't know that engine was on the KC ninety seven. It was. We uh, we My had late nine partner used to fly those for the Air Force. John, yeah, they were good airplanes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we uh, in the in the guard there. We we. Uh, that they they flew those things all over the world, and yeah. and never lost one. Wow, what a but nightmare! All of, our, all of our guys were all of our guys that do it. They were professional pilots. Yeah, they were good. Well, we got to talk more about this. We ought to have a show and just uh, just have a little uh, bull session about what we liked about flying. I think that'd be a good topic. Oh yeah. Well, I would say everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always like to bring it in with Hop Harrigan and for a landing. Oh, yeah. So, uh, would you, would you uh, go ahead and land the airplane so we can uh, I can stay within an hour of the showtime? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me get the end of this thing here. Okay. Let's see here. Dallas Tower. This is ATR's Flight 71, about 10 miles out, and we have you in sight. Roger, Arch 71. You're you're cleared to land, runway 36 left, and the wind's 340 at 10 knots. Okay. 
said this is Hop Harrigan coming in. Feeling well, friends, all clear. Okay, this is Hop Harrigan coming in. Yep, I heard the radio show. Jim, you have a great Thanksgiving. I'm going to. And, and you also. Hey, you didn't you didn't ask you about the weather today here, but it's it's uh, I have a pleasant 37 degrees, and uh, it's wow. pretty cool and raining. Oh, wow. Well, yep. Find something enjoyable for the day. I'm going to. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time, hey, Jim. Hey, Neil, thank you for doing a great job. It's always fun and interesting. Yeah, I like to talk about aviation, airlines, oh, military, yeah. whatever. It was, it, was our, it was our life for a long time. It sure was. Okay, let's get well, Have a great silver, day. Silver wings. Don't take that airplane ride, but you locked me out of your mind. Left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sunlight Roaring engines Headed somewhere in flight They're taking you away